This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 16, 2017, and this is Michael Howie, welcoming you to episode 412 of Defender Radio. The Little Smoky Caribou Herd is in trouble. And the Alberta government is gearing up for a plan that scientists and advocates claim will only waste money and could actually harm wildlife populations in the long run. Less than 100 of the ungulates remain, and unless something is done, the population and the species itself could disappear from Canada forever. Studies have shown that the greatest risk to the caribou is habitat alteration, primarily from the exploration and exploitation of resources, that create roads, carve out seismic lines used for geological surveying, and generally fragment the landscape. Under the apparently false flag of conservation, the Alberta government has infamously slaughtered hundreds of wolves instead of ending habitat fragmentation. Government reports have shown that the province's experts don't think this will save the caribou. Only repairing the habitat can do that. But instead of doing the one thing science shows will be successful, the government has launched another plan, this time to build a fence system to effectively farm caribou. Other ungulates and predators found within this fenced area will be killed, and if the breeding is successful, caribou will be released periodically. Dr. Gilbert Prue, an independent scientist and head of Alpha Wildlife Research and Management Limited, has co-authored a paper that takes a critical look at the plan to fence in caribou and why it will ultimately fail. To discuss this paper, the situation facing the Smoky Mountain caribou, and what the public can do to put a stop to a costly and potentially lethal plan, Dr. Prue joined Defender Radio. A good place to start for us today would be to look at what the uh, the current situation is with the Little Smoky caribou herd, uh, mountain caribou herd in Alberta. Um, So if you could provide maybe just that sort of like very quick bird's eye view of what the situation is before we get into your your study and review of the proposed okay. uh, solution by the government. Okay. Well, the Little Smoky population always has been uh, a population that was uh, small numbers, really. Like uh, if you look at the literature that goes back to the 1980s, it was never a large population. It shared sometimes animals with his uh, neighbor population called uh, Alapaish population. Now, the, uh, the, the smoky is a boreal woodland caribou type, okay? The alapash is a mountain type. Uh, the difference is in their behavior. Mountain types, they, uh, they migrate uh, during summer and winter periods vertically. They go back in the mountains, uh, the top of the mountains in the alpine, where they are much more protected from uh, predation and harassment from people. While the boreal caribou doesn't move much, she stays pretty much the same habitat, from winter to to calving in the spring and even in the summer, it's not a it's not a migratory uh, ecotype. But they both have uh, just for your information, they both have the same genotype, and uh, they exchange animals from herd to herd. And uh, an animal um, can breed with uh, caribou of any herd, you know, and uh, you would not see a difference. They look identical as well. So the um, Little Smoky is a relatively small population. It's located uh, west of White Court along uh, the watershed called the Little Smoky. Um, 
it's a population which uh, uh, used to be uh, surveyed uh, through planes or helicopters, was mostly uh, airplane uh, surveys. And in the 2003 to 2005, the population was actually picking up in numbers. Uh, there were fluctuations upward. And by 2005, they had about 80 animals. Today, they are about 80 animals as well. So it's not um, it's not population that they increase um, significantly over the years, uh, but it, it sh they should be proud of themselves, those caribou, because they maintain their numbers in spite of all the increased industrial activity that occurred on their landscape. And that certainly is the uh, the. I don't need, know if we call it the talking point or really that sort of fulcrum to what's happening in their situation is that development of the land. And uh, in addition to, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion over the last few years as the, the population has dwindled and as the government has said we need to do something. Um, the two most notable plants to date, one was, um, as many people know, the culling of wolves in the region. Uh, through aerial gunning, snaring, and various other uh, inherently inhumane activities. Um, and, and now the most recent plan that was announced in the province, which has prompted uh, your your study and your review, is uh, to create a 100-kilometer two-fenced enclosure that would encompass part of their range to keep out all predators and other ungulates to allow for breeding, so effectively farming. Uh, that's a term that you use and that I've seen that's in other right. instances. Um, what What is the basis for this concept? Uh, like, it's not something that sounds uh, uh, e immediately logical. It doesn't feel intuitive to say, well, we'll just fence them in. Okay, so uh, let, let's me uh, go back. Uh, I, I, at some points, you may think I'm rambling, but you will see it's all connected. It's... Uh, it's a very, very complex situation because the governments do not share with people, and there were actors into that uh, that scenario that played in the dark for the last 15 years. And now I'm starting to find the evidence out that whole thing was a, almost like organized crime, you know. So uh, <laughs> we go back in the early 2000s, and there were. Um, studies by uh, University of Alberta. Their main researcher on caribou there is Stan Boutin. And uh, they did models. And their models indicated that uh, if they were stopping all, all industry in the province, throughout the province, the province will lose over $100 billion in revenues. Then they said, if we were fixing the seismic lines everywhere in the province, it will cost over $100 million. But another model showed that if you were to kill all the wolves in the next 50 years, it would cost only $10 million. So these scientists uh, recommended from an uh, economic point of view, it would be best to kill the wolves to save the caribou. Now, just a parenthesis here, uh, you may change the habitat in the area of uh, Calgary and stop the industry in the area of Calgary, you won't accomplish much for caribou. Caribou do not live there. Uh, their uh, concept of habitat rehabilitation is uh, replanting seismic lines. 
seismic lines are not caribou habitat. They cross caribou habitat, and they are associated with the issue of wolf predation. But let's say it right now, wolves do not use seismic lines to cross the land if those seismic lines have been left untouched in the winter. There's too much snow, it's too difficult to travel through. They use seismic lines when bulldozers or snowmobiles repeatedly use them and then they pack them, they become like a pavement route, you know, a, a road, you know. So the, the, the issue of seismic lines is uh, actually um, something that steer away your focus on the real issue of habitat. Now, killing the wolves for $10 million in 50 years, this is uh, really a fib because uh, we will come back later to that, but 2005, 2012, this is what it cost them to kill wolves in the Rockies uh, by the Lictol Smoky. So, uh, anyway, this is how in those early days they just tried that wolf culling will work, you know. And then from 2005 to 2012, they, now, since 1980, there were biologists that were saying the habitat in the Little Smoky needs to be fixed. It needs to be safe. It needs to be improved, you know. But the province is a very uh, pro-industry province, and they never listened to that. So came 2005, the provincial government decided to do a wolf calling period. And during 2005 and 2012, they killed over nearly 900 wolves. And the culling is still going on with, uh, originally it was with uh, shooting, uh, killing neck snares and poisoning. And uh, they are still using all of that. Uh, the, um, the, we made a lot of pressure that they remove strychnine because they were killing other valuable uh, species from an endangered point of view, namely the wolverine, but they are still concerning the poisoning. So um, from 2005 to 2012, their program did not work. Now, the assumption that was behind the culling of the wolves was if we kill wolves, the population will grow by 10% on a yearly basis. Uh, after uh, what, uh, seven years of, kill of killing, uh, the population was still stable at 80 animals. There was no growth. Now, that's a sample size of one. Then the government said that because of their culling, they were able to stabilize the population. But the population was stabilized before the culling. Actually, it was doing even better before the culling. So this was, uh, in order to save face, they said that, okay? So um, they thought that their wolf culling wasn't working, but they don't like the wolves, and that's a good scapegoat, like in many other places. So they decided to do that uh, fencing experiment. Now, that fencing experiment came over 10 years ago. That wasn't a little smoky. The uh, fence, uh, I think it was something like uh, maybe 14 cows. Uh, we will have to go back the numbers, you know. I, I don't remember. Yeah, I think it's about 14 cows. Anyway, they had uh, seven babies. They lost one cow and, uh, uh, and one calf, I think, in enclosure. Then they released seven babies, se seven calves. And uh, those calves have a lower survival rate than the one in nature. Uh, so, uh, so they didn't make a big thing about it. They published in an obscure paper uh, uh, that was at a conference, and we never heard from them again. In 2010, there was a symposium paid by the oil and gas industry workshop, they call it, 
And then they reviewed all the fencing program again, and they said, well, it's going to cost quite a bit. It would be difficult, but what the hell, we have the money. This is how it came up to that fencing program that now we're now debating uh, in 2016. But now that um, 2010 was the symposium. Before that, there was the enclosure experiment. So we go back many years. It's not a project that they, they, uh, they shed on the table overnight. You know, that's something it's well organized, it's well thought out. So they, uh, they came up with the idea of fencing, but uh, of course, they don't want their calves to be eaten. So they decided to kill all predators in within the enclosure and to continue the killing of wolves outside the enclosure. And um, uh, and this being that they know very well that if you release farm animals in a forest, they won't last long if there is predators going around. Well, and isn't that a, like in the very simple concept of, of evolution and learning is you're not allowing for that natural selection of those who know how to survive with wolves around and those who do not know how to survive with wolves around. All you're getting is animals. Yeah, yeah that adaptation you're talking about actually is being given by the mom. And there were studies in the United States. There's a researcher, his last name is Berger. He has done quite a bit of work on naivety in, in ungulates. And he found that if you uh, have a mom moves with a calf, and the moose perceives the presence of a predator, the moose will teach his calf, and the calf will become as sharp as the mom. But if the calf by himself, like the release or caribou, gets eaten, there is no learning experience there. She cannot, that calf cannot pass the experience to another calf. If he becomes a female and he gets eaten, he cannot pass the information to, to the future calf, you know? So there's no learning process. And this is a problem that other organizations are, are experiencing, like they released some pandas this year in China, and they had the same issue, they were losing their pandas to uh, predators, because the, the pandas could not recognize predators. Yeah. They simply yeah. hadn't had any exposure to it as, as juveniles. No exposure. And you know what? You go in, uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, I remember uh, in uh, 1983 or so, I uh, was working in Newfoundland. We worked in a region where animals had never seen any people, really. And uh, we could approach caribou, we could approach foxes. They look at us, they didn't know what we were, you know. So it's, it's the same with animals. I, know, I mean, we're just another type, that's all, you know. So now Boutin from the university, I heard yesterday, is claiming that... Uh, uh, calving uh, in uh, enclosure and raising the animals uh, works and they give an example uh, in British Columbia in the Revolstoke area. Now the Revolstoke is a different ecotype of caribou and also they release animals but we don't know what happened to them. You know, it's one thing to release animals but the success of an introduction must be evaluated over several generations and they are not there to claim that it works. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, that would be like talking about, uh, uh, you know, one of the ones I like to look at is the the reintroduction of the Canada goose, uh, the the giant Canada goose specifically in southern Ontario, Minnesota, yeah. that whole area. And they thought, well, we'll just let a few birds uh, out, yeah. uh, but they didn't consider yeah. the generational impact. And now, uh, as you know, 
uh, tons of money and resources are spent on trying to prevent the damage caused by those excessive populations. Right, right. Yeah, well, yeah, they have be paid for their money. They have to go for their money there. Um, so so the, uh, th- this is one example that he throws there. Then he gave as an example uh, Africa with fences. Well, Africa, I spent quite a bit of time, and I'm an adjunct professor in Africa. Uh, and Africa has fences uh, less and less. And where we have fences is to protect people from lions, you know, and, not, uh, and to protect also the uh, ecological areas from farming or poaching by the locals uh, that live in small villages. So it's two different purposes there, you know. It's not, there is a case where there was a fencing done around a water hole in order to protect an endangered antelope species from competition and predation. But it's a small discrete population and it was not a question of uh, improving the number of animals. It was making sure they don't get eaten. That's all. Now, in Africa, countries are now removing fences and they prefer continuous reserves across the land, like over two or three countries. And then the animals take care of themselves. Then they made a comparison with Elk Island National Parks where we have fences. Well, the fences on Elk Island National Park is to separate two different subspecies of bison, so they don't intermingle and become um, um, hybrids, you know. And it's also to protect people who drive through because bison like to go sit in the middle of the asphalt. So they, opened, they removed the fence one year, and we had two people got killed the same night. So it's two different purposes. But in Elk Island National Park, predators, ungulates, all species, are free to come in and out as they wish. There is doors for them to go to use. So these type of comparisons are giving, are misleading the public and judging the fencing program they are proposing in Alberta. So the, it appears that the fencing is not going to be ideal for a, a, a laundry list of reasons. And, you're, and in your, your paper, you, you ask some very pointed questions and respond with the evidence uh, looking at um, will a long-term recovery of the Little Smoky Caribou population be uh, guaranteed and or likely safeguarded? And as you said, no, there's no evidence to suggest it would be. Um, would they be able to contribute to the sustainability of the entire Little Smoky population? Again, there is there is more evidence against than there is for. Um, and, I think so. Yeah, and it, well, I, and again, I mean, when the way you break that down too is very helpful because you say there there are these examples where fencing is used successfully, but the context and circumstances are significantly different. Like the purpose of the fencing is different. Yeah, exactly. And and you know what? Uh, we can make a, a real simple uh, analogy here. A farmer may have a quarter section field. Okay. So on this quarter section, maybe he will have five cows and they will be happy. If tomorrow he puts 50 cows, within a month, the field will be completely destroyed, overgrazed, he won't produce anymore, okay? Well, those caribou that they want to release, in the range that they have, there is a limitation, a carrying capacity limitation by the habitat. There is about 20% of the landscape that is good for caribou. So you cannot suddenly double or triple the population because there's no room for them to get all their food. So uh, a farming program, and I don't like those farming programs for all the reasons I just gave you before, 
But let's say that we were going with a farming program. It could be successful only if there was an increase, increase in functional habitat. And their program does not consider increasing functional habitat. All they're doing is blocking some seismic lines to stop people and they see uh, predators from going up the range. But as I said, wolves do not use seismic lines. Um, I've seen oftentimes with wolves and with myself, it's easier to walk through the bush if I want to go somewhere rather than using a seismic line. So, but caribou, uh, wolves don't like to go in musk eggs, which is the main habitat of caribou, because it's hard to, for them to walk there. They have very fine legs, like a dog, and they just crash through the snow. We go with uh, wide snowshoes, and we, 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 we go deep a bit, you know? And caribou have large feet, and they are light animals. The, some places you have even problems seeing the tracks, they move so fast over. So that's not where the wolves get their food. When they kill a caribou, often because a caribou has been displaced into an upland habitat, and that's where they are easier to kill. Now, I, uh, one of the other things I found interesting in, in my reading of this subject is when we talk about the wolf depredation on caribou and on, and on all ungulates in the area, um, and we talk about the habitat alteration, um, it's of interest to me that the fact that the habitat alteration for exploitation of resources gives the wolves a greater advantage in their hunting techniques. Um, well, uh, let's say that you create a, a food plan for them, you know, because once you have cut within the first eight years, moose will increase in numbers and with deer as well within the cut blocks. Mm -hmm. So, the wolf often they will sleep nearby cut blocks, and that's where they go get their lunch. You know. Yeah, um, it's it's very much sort of creating a situation, um, and and that's something else too. Is even if they were to go forward with this fencing plan, they would continue to allow resource exploration that's and right. exploitation in that region, even though it is very very clear from all science, including their own that the use of resources, the, the, the roads, the extraction, all of that is the number one cause of the decline of the population. So is this, uh, is all of this very much an attempt to say, look, we're doing something as opposed to admitting? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a smoke screen. It's, uh, uh, listen, if you read the, the, that paper on fencing that you, I think you have in your hands there, you look in the discussion, I have a letter that I received from the head of planning for the province in the northern region. Himself, he says that the killing of the predators and of the uh, alternate prey is not going to save the caribou. It's, okay? It's, uh, I think it's the second or last paragraph in the discussion. So why would you spend $10, 15000000 million on the program that you know that will fail? But when you you do that, you give the impression that it's okay, you know, they're doing the best to save the species at risk. It's really a, a cover-up. A cover-up. We don't see, when we wrote that paper, we didn't see that there was a true commitment to saving habitat. And interestingly enough, in all those years that the University of Alberta and the government has worked together to save the caribou, they never did a project 
to improve and save habitat. They never did. Now, if in 1980, when the biologists were saying, we have to start to save the habitat, if they are started in 1980, uh, we will have a lot more habitat now. So now they are saying, well, it would take 50 years to improve the habitat, we might as well kill the wolves. It doesn't take 50 years to improve the habitat. There are muskegs that are, you see, like the government doesn't even know where they live, those suckers. They did a, a habitat suitability index. It's a model to say where the caribou would be. They consider that in the Little Smoky, they live in pure black spruce stands, in uh, dominated black spruce stands. When we did our study there, we found that caribou in the muskegs, when it comes to muskegs, the place that they avoid first is the 100% black spruce dominated stands. Anything over 90% black spruce, they won't get close to it. So, you know, that's pretty bad. That you don't even know which habitat they are living in. But some of those black spruce stands are in connection with muskegs that have a mixture of both tamarack and black spruce, and actually they have also some large pine in them. So if we go in those black spruce stands, we thin them out, we put some uh, um, tamarack, uh, those stands in a few years will be usable by caribou. So it's, and we're not talking uh, $100 million here, you know. It can be done effectively, you know, and uh, easily. And some of those stands are disconnected because there is an abandoned, um, I call that, infrastructure from oil and gas. We can reconnect them. And then suddenly, a caribou, instead of having five hectares of muskeg, it could end up with eight hectares of muskeg. And also, every small step helps there with those caribou. And if we move from 20% to 30 or 40% over time, well, then the population has a, a good justification to grow in numbers. You know. I know I, I do want to ask a couple more questions about the sort of the advocacy side of this. Uh, but before I do, there's a question I, I often ask, and I'm always interested in the different answers I get, purely from the devil's advocate on being a jerk point of view. Could we argue, or could someone argue, that if these animals are unable to adapt, they should be allowed to become extinct, and another mm -hmm. species that could adapt takes over that role? Uh, like, is mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. a, a reasonable argument to say we are doing all of these things for an animal we can't save, based based upon what the government has shown they are willing and not willing to do? So it's time to yeah. walk well, away from yes, it. Yes, there and is an argument. Sorry, it's, no. it's time to walk away. You don't, and you try don't walk else. away from that. There is 80 animals. Now, with their models, Boutin and the gang there, I call them like that, you know, uh, they figure out that you needed a 100 minimum number of animals in the population. Okay? So, because with sterile extinction, you know, with 100 animals, you may be able to pass the threshold of how many years, within seven years, to be extinct. When you're at 80 animals or 100 animals, I don't really care a whole lot. Um, just open a parenthesis, I have been contacted by researchers in Germany because they had a, a large forest in, uh, in, a, in a rural area uh, that had um, a marten living in this. 
there was something like 21 Martin and so on. And a scientist from the University of Guelph had written that in order to survive, you need a minimum of 30 Martin. So they contacted me and they say, should we just lug the bush and let those Martin go because we're short of nine animals? <laughs> so I told them, no, no, you don't do that because there are 21 animals. They can reproduce, but they have been there for 50 years. So keep them, and today they're still there. So numbers are models, you know, you have to be careful with that. Now, when it comes to the caribou and the little smoky, we don't know what will be the future, because as you said, um, oil and gas activities will continue on a voluntary basis. So if tomorrow the oil and gas increase, their barrel increase by uh, $20, you can be sure that oil and gas companies are going to go for the oil and screw the caribou, you know? So... We don't know what will happen, and things could get worse. Maybe we're not in the worst situation. But there's one thing regarding that adaptation I want to make a point. All the caribou that live there now, all were born when there were seismic line in their habitat. They were all born with a high level of fragmentation. They are used to that fragmentation. When I track them for two years in the winters, often I will come upon freshly uh, used beds right in the middle of seismic lines. They were not open seismic lines. And the caribou will move from one side of the seismic lines and feeding on lichens. So they are adapted to those habitats. You know, we're not taking an animal that is in a pristine habitat and suddenly we put in an area where 70% of the area is crisscrossed with seismic lines. These animals would be lost. They would say, what the hell is that? Now, these habitats were born with seismic lines. For them, it's just a, an anomaly of the grounds, and they move on with their things. This is where the adaptation of these animals are. So these are not lost animals. These are not animals that are condemned to disappear because they cannot adapt. They cannot survive, though, if we continue to let that habitat number go down and down and down, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, with the high level of killing of wolves and no change to habitat, we might be able to keep those 80 caribou alive. And So, that's short population, yeah. Yeah. So, if we want to increase that number to create a more sustainable population, the habitat has to change. That's Is right. that more or less where we're at? That's pretty much where we're at. And you don't need to kill the wolves. Because, but, but you know, like right now, they kill everything and eh? moose, deer, and so on. So the wolf has nothing to eat, you know? So, but if you keep the, the deer, the moose, and so on, I've seen areas where wolves just are happy to eat moose and deer on a daily basis, you know? But all my studies, uh, I work in Saskatchewan on caribou population there. I'm going there next week. And uh, in Alberta, we don't find wolves in the middle of muskex. They don't go there, you know? If they have the choice, they will go after a deer before going after a caribou. And besides, a caribou is a big rabbit, you know, like there's not a lot of meat compared to a a moose, you know. So wolves prefer to have the big chunk, you know. So uh, you don't need to kill the wolves. If there is wolves that for some reason develop an appetite for caribou, we can deal with them like we do with some livestock situation. But killing the wolves as we're doing right now, it's just unethical. It's not, it doesn't make sense. If you look at the history of predator control, none of these programs work. Well, and especially, too, the 
the the uh, cascading of the trophics too that we see um and while i know there's some folks who try and contest that even just looking at your uh you have in your study the uh conceptual diagram of a complex food web with wolves cougars and bears at the top i mean the second you remove a wolf from that you even just looking at the three line or four lines you would remove like you can see all of a sudden all of these populations are going to be out of whack um, so it's yeah out of black and there is something else that will happen once you remove the wolves the bear and so on but particularly the wolf in that case uh, the mesopredator like, let's say the coyote then become the apex predator and coyotes are getting pretty smart they live in large groups now and coyotes are able to kill young cows so so what do we do next we have to kill all the coyotes so you know there's no end there's no end to it. You know, it doesn't make sense. This is not how you manage. And, and you know, if you look, uh, wildlife management is a science, or wildlife conservation, if you prefer, is as much of a science as physiology or behavior. It's a place where we integrate our knowledge, okay? And we apply it on the field. All studies have shown that the only way that you can bring back species at risk is by reconstituting their habitat. You, I don't care for the numbers of animals. You can produce as many as you want in an aquarium or in a, in a pen. If you don't have habitat, these animals are doomed. And there they go, and they use, they say, oh, they are professionals, they are the specialists on caribou. They go to produce more animals, but they don't have any habitat to keep them. It doesn't make sense. It's such poor science. It's maddening. Well, and that's something I find, um, and I, I am finding this in various various instances. Specifically, I think though, with with wildlife conservation scientists, biologists, whatever the the doctrine is, uh, in dealing with government policy as it relates to populations, is this frustration and almost anger of you say you want to do what's best for the animals but you're rejecting or ignoring the bulk of scientific evidence. So again, when we talk about coals, when we talk about habitat restoration, the evidence is all very clear. And I hear from you this passion of you're ignoring all of this. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's standing, uh, it's a, the, the picture of the guy sitting in a restaurant saying everything's fine as the restaurant burns down around him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, you know, personally... How do you deal with that? I mean, as someone who who is very clearly dedicated much of his life to the scientific pursuit or the, the pursuit of science, how do you manage both emotionally and practically this sort of onslaught of nonsense that you have to deal with? Well, it's it's getting hard. <laughs> you know, I have a, a pretty tough skin because I work on humane trapping and and uh, you know, like I don't have problems maintaining activities like. Uh, fur trapping and so on, if it's done in a humane way. And right now I have a fight against killing neck snares. Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I have a fight against bounties in uh, agricultural areas where they kill every wolf, every coyote they see. And I have a problem with that, uh, that uh, caribou thing. And yesterday a, uh, a reporter asked me who was paying me to do all that trouble. And, uh, and I said, no, it's all pro bono. And my colleagues that work with me are all pro bono as well. And the reason, and then these people can understand that. We were life professionals. We, we spent our life, our 40 years of field experience, we spent our life maintaining our 
populations of wildlife as much as possible. And then there is those uh, outrageous programs that come in. Um, it's not a question of money, it's a question of maintaining what we develop for our generations to come. And uh, it's funny, I was in uh, uh, Cuba during Christmas and I came across a small kid. He had a t-shirt, it was written on, on it, uh, would you save the planet for me? You know, so that's the, so it's very, very hard because um, like, for example, in those programs where I'm objecting the killing of uh, the wolves and objecting to killing next year and objecting to straight nine, right away the trapper organization called me an anti-trapper. Uh, the, 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 uh, the university, the government are saying that I'm a consultant, I will say anything to get money, okay? And then you have the, uh, uh, the, the people who um, the industry that say that I'm interfering with progress. So I get all type of crap through everybody, you know, and I, I still continue. The problem that we have, and this, don't mention it, but these people work with millions of dollars and we have a pocket change at our own change that we use to try to fight that. So it's very, very difficult. We cannot attend the same conferences always. We cannot put together a same public relations system because they have a full department and I have one person in my office. So it's very, very hard. So it's, it's tough on, on everybody, including my family, but that's how it is, you know? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not whining. I'm just telling you the response oh, no, and to that's, your question, you know? Yeah, that's, that's the truth that people need to hear, though, is what it, it's like. And you and I obviously are going to disagree on some aspects of management um, just by the nature of what we do but we can still sit and have this conversation about science. Um, and to me, yeah. that's, that's gotta be the, the hard part is the, the politicize, the politizing politis. I don't know what the word is anymore. I had it in my head, but the, the polarizing of the issues, you know, like everybody is at one end or the other of the pendulum, you know, like, uh, yep. Well, and that's you talking about the snares and other things like that. Like we're asking, can we have more setbacks? Can you put up signs? So people with dogs know, that there are snares in the area. And they say, why would we ever do that? It's like, because dogs are dying. Like, that's a pretty straightforward, you know, here's the problem, here's the solution. Um, but there's this this fear of change. And if it's one thing, it's all the things. Um, so it's... it's Snares have to be removed altogether. I mean, this is, you know, like there was such a bit, I have an interesting paper that would come in about two weeks, uh, two months. Um, it's, uh, you know, like we had a major com campaign against legal traps, still legal trap. And, um, I develop our alternatives and so on. And still legal traps are still being used in Canada in spite of what they claim. And in the States, the Europeans made a big fight about still legal trap because they were causing atrocious injuries, you know, while the killing next year are doing as bad, if not worse, yeah. but it doesn't have the icon of the still Lego trap. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, that's something obviously we look at a lot. Um, uh, we, we are opposed to the use of traps. Um, and, you know, I I hear them talk about the leg hole trap. And one of the th things people find interesting, too, is they think, well, either it hurts the animal or it doesn't hurt the animal. But they don't then consider the fact that the animal's in there for 24 to 72 hours. And that whole yeah, time is right. trying exactly. to get away. Um, you know, the well, example... you know, we, I have done a research on Arctic fox, uh, 
And yeah, I had shown that I can capture that six fox that was in the Northeast Series and in a illegal trap. And if I check my trap within 12 hours, I wouldn't have any injury. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's the price to pay if you want to use that device. Trappers do not want to go back within 24, 48, or 76 hours. You know, they want to go when it pleases them. Well, that's not it works. That's not it works with animal welfare. There are conditions to maintain animal welfare. You know, so at this point, Silego trap cannot be maintained. We have to come up with something that will compensate for the lack of rigor within the behavior of people. And even there, even if you come with the best, most humane trap, you cannot be idiot proof. Someone will manage to screw up. So, but uh, but anyway, I, I like I said, I'm not an anti trapper, but I'm an anti cruelty. That's that's two different things. Yes. There, you know. Well, and I think you and I are going to have to either have whiskey and beer and talk about that or do another interview sometime. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I diverted, um, but like you said, I'm oh, quite no, passionate that's... about those things, you know, so. Well, and that's finally what I want to ask is, I mean, you're you're obviously very passionate and you are using the tools you have at your disposal, which is the science, is talking to other scientists, talking to your government contacts. But for for the rest of us who are reading about this or listening to it, what can we do to try and talk to the government or try and get this this obvious and this this peer reviewed science sort of move forward to show this plan will not work. We need to find a better way. What can we be doing to promote that? Okay, okay. Here's what needs to be done. Uh, like you said, I'm a scientist. I'm not an. I don't do. Uh, I'm, I don't belong to any advo- advocate group, and I don't do uh, um, campaigns. Let's say you know. I, I report my findings, and I see that's what they mean. You know. Okay. The public and the advocate groups must. Uh, there is the easier answer. The easy one is call your MLA and tell them things need to be changed. MLA don't give a shit anymore. Um, sorry for the word. But they, they, they are backbenchers, most of them. And if they talk, they get slapped. You know, uh, They're being told, that's not your issue. Sit down if you want to go up in the system. But still, call your MLA and tell them you're infuriated by the situation. Second, write opinion letters, you know. People should write letters and send it to their local media and say enough is enough. The issue would get resolved faster if it was in Quebec or Ontario maybe, but Quebec for sure, because those type of situations become usually uh, political arguments for the next election. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. In Alberta, it will never be a political argument. But you must be like a, a fly that is always around, you know, and bugs people. So this way, people must try to write letters of opinion and send them whatever they can. Now, the biggest part, and this groups don't seem to understand that. I have met with a lot of naturalist groups uh, where I'm being invited to talk, and they ask me the same question as you, what should we do, you know? The world has changed. And again, I will seem like rambling, but listen to me on that. In Alberta, if you want to do research, you cannot get money from the Alberta government. All the money is being sent to the uh, Alberta uh, Conservation Association, ACA. When you apply for research funding and for management funding at ACA, there's a question that you have to answer. 
And this question makes the difference between getting or not money. Will it increase the amount of animals that trappers and hunters can kill? Hmm. Well, when I did my study on bounties, I said, no, the idea was to reduce the number of animals, is to do better management. I didn't get any funding, of course. Yeah. So, so we cannot get funding there. My funding, I have a study on bounties right now. My funding comes from naturalists and advocate groups. This is the future for people who care for a wholesome approach in the management of wilderness. Okay. So advocate groups, uh, naturalist groups must start to come together under a same roof and bring together their resources, their membership, put together money and have their own education and research programs. And until we have that, it will never work because we are a bunch of dogs barking from one uh, backyard to another, you know. And the, 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 we're just barking. That's what we're doing. There's a group in, uh, in BC called Wolf Awareness. Yep. They are promoting both education and research. But this is what we need. We cannot convince those people to come together. If you look at North America, we must have easily 200, 300 groups associated with wolf conservation, you know, and none of them speak to the other. Mm-hmm. They exchange information, they put it on the web, but you know how many members they represent? 10 bucks from each member, you would have funding as high as what the university gets, and we could fight fire with fire, you know? Absolutely. So I think that's where, I think that's where the future is, is we have to start to show that we're independent uh, researcher, uh, and, and people with an independent understanding from the government. And if you can face the government with as complex studies and so on as they have, um, then they have to back off. But, but right now, even with my paper, the last since 2015, I wrote quite a few papers, I have quite a follow-up at the international level, and I receive a lot of letters uh, supporting me, you know from scientists. So it does have an impact. To learn more about Dr. Prue's research, visit his website at alphawildlife.ca. That's it for this week, folks. Please visit Dr. Prue's website. Follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog to read the full study on the fence program and contact your MLA or MP today to have your voice heard. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.